0: Well hey, good morning. As you make your way back, if you would grab your Bibles, let's remain standing if you're able. Open up to the book of Acts. If you're just joining us, we're going through a short series uh, over the summer. Uh, If you can, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Open up to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Grab one of those blue hardback Bibles if you don't have your Bible with you. I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's Word out in front of them. We're looking at Acts chapter 4 verse 32 and then we're going to read a little into chapter 5 because these two stories go together. Uh, As Pastor Richard mentioned, a lot of the pastors and I, we were out in Denver, Colorado this past week and uh, maybe I might have avoided the meeting one day and gone hiking and uh, I might have played hooky at the meeting one day. And maybe as I was hiking with my friends, they were talking about how they were going to get in trouble with their church for skipping the meeting to go hiking, and that's when I realized how thankful I am for our church, because I thought that y'all would be proud of me for skipping a meeting and going hiking. So uh, anyway, good to be back. Uh, There really was a tornado. I avoided it, Uh, but Pastor Larry was there, Richard was there, Scott was there, I was there, Mike McCandless was there. Uh, It was great, and it was a beautiful hike that I might have done. (laughs) With that in mind, we're looking this morning at the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 32 through 511. And we're going to be looking at what it means to be the generous community this week. But we're really going to be looking at two very interesting stories that are meant to be seen in contrast to each other. Uh, So with that in mind, let's read God's Word. Look down at Acts, chapter 4, and hear the Word of the Lord to us from Luke. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, didn't it remain your own? And after you sold it, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. And then would you be seated, and let's keep that Bible open as we pray. Uh, Father, we ask that we would have, uh, as Pastor Richard said, our ears unplugged. Lord, whatever stoppages there are in our hearts and our minds, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would remove those and we would hear your voice. Lord, that we would be instructed by these words and compelled by the grace of Jesus Christ to be generous people and not fake believers. So Lord, save us from hypocrisy and greed and from a grasping for good reputation And Lord, would the gospel make us genuine, honest people, full of integrity, in Jesus' name, amen. So is reputation all we really have in this life? Is your reputation all you really have? Uh, So thought uh, Cassio in William Shakespeare's famous Othello Some of the most famous words in that play go like this, reputation, reputation, reputation. Oh, I have lost my reputation. I have lost the immortal part of myself. And what remains is bestial. Is your reputation all you really have? Well, I want you to look down at Acts chapter 4 And I want you to see that really this is two stories and they're meant to be seen in contrast to each other. First, we're introduced to a man named Barnabas. His real name is Joseph. But he's a person full of integrity, worthy of praise. He's an encourager. Uh, He is put forward as somebody whose faith we should emulate. But the irony, of course, is he's a person that does not desire a great name for himself. But by the end of the story, he has a great name and he even has a cool nickname. Don't you love that? I love it when, when people get nicknames in the Bible. Jesus loved to give people nicknames, right? He nicknames Peter what? Rocky, yes. And he names uh, James and John the Sons of Thunder, right? And so we see the apostles carrying on Jesus' favorite tradition of giving people nicknames. Instead of calling him Joseph, Instead of calling him Joe, they call him Son of Encouragement, Barnabas. Uh, This is why I try to give people nicknames. If you get around my orbit long enough, beware, I may give you a nickname. Uh, My favorite nickname is Richard Evans' nickname. Does anybody know what it is? It's Revens, Reverend Evans. If you conflate those two, you just shorten time and you get Revens. So one of these days, he's going to introduce himself as Revens, and you're going to understand the joke. Barnabas does not seek a great reputation, and yet by the end of this story, he's put forward as a man worthy of imitation. And the irony, the tragedy of this story, of course, is that Ananias and Sapphira, these two people who are associated with the church, they are grasping for a good reputation, and yet by the end of it, they become a warning to all of us to not be fake in our Christianity not to just merely want the accoutrements or the praise of other people. So what are we supposed to see in this story? I mean, this is one of those strange stories where you're like, ha, the Bible, this is fun. <laughs> and then by the end of it, you're like, what, what just happened? I don't understand. I thought this was going to be like fun and happy. And why are there people dropping dead in the end of the story? Well, if you're wondering that, just hang on. Uh, If you can, and let's walk through this passage and let's see if you can hear the voice of God speaking through this passage. So let's look down at verse 432, right at the beginning. I want you to see uh, most fundamentally that the church is called to be a generous community. Look at verse 432. Now the full number, all the believers who believed were of one heart and one soul. That means they had one goal in mind, right? They were unified, And how does that unity work itself out? What does it mean when a church is really on fire for the Lord, understanding the gospel? Notice what Luke says. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. That is, look down at verse 34. That means that there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and distributed it to each as any had need. What I want you to grasp about the early church is it was profoundly committed to the ministry of caring for the poor and needy. That this was not just a periphery thing that the church kind of did when they had extra money laying around. Caring for the needy in its community is at the very heart of the Christian community. So, uh, Let's do, let's, have you ever played Family Feud? Has anyone ever been on Family Feud? That'd be so cool if you could. You understand Family Feud? You know, you're supposed to, you know, guess what the top answer is. So let's play a a round of Family Feud if we can, okay? You can say it out loud if you want to. All right, so uh, the Barna Research Group is a research group in California. And uh, just a few weeks ago, they released their new study called How Pastors and Non-Christians See the Church's Role in Communities. So, they were polling, they actually poll Christians, non Christians, and pastors, and they say, What is the role of the Christian church in a community? What does the church exist to do in any given community? What do you think pastors' number one answer is? This is where the family feud thing comes in. What's the top answer pastors give for why does the church exist? Number one reason pastors say the church exists to share the gospel with people who need to hear the message of Jesus. Also known as what? What else could you call that? Evangelism, sharing the faith. So pastors think that, you know, if I'm a normal pastor, our job is to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the Rogue Valley. That's why we exist. Interestingly, what do Christians think the church exists to do? Do you think they share that same answer? If you ask the average American Christian, why does the church exist in your community? What what answer do you think Christians give? To help Christians grow. Whew. That's a whole sermon all by itself. Talk about a disconnect. Well, which is it? Is it about us or is it about sharing the gospel? Non-Christians answer. Why does the church exist? Why would a non-Christian think a church exists? What do you think their, their number one answer is? Does someone say money? <laughs> That's so jaded. <sighs> their number, number one answer, non-Christians are like, I don't know. Why does the church exist? To provide hands-on help to the needy. So which is it? Does the church exist to disciple Christians, to help you understand the Bible more, to help you in your prayer life? Does the church exist to share the gospel in our community? Or does the church exist to provide hands-on help for the needy? Well, of course, what I want to suggest to you, and maybe an annoying way, is that it's all of those things. It's all of those things. You cannot reduce the church down to simply one thing. Uh, Last week, I suggested to you that the church was a bold community, bold in its faith. And then two weeks ago, I suggested to you that the church was a compelling community, not simply because it devotes itself to the teaching of the word of God, but also because it has a heart for the poor and needy among them. So uh, if you've hung around with me long enough, you may have heard me give the analogy of uh, the body of Christ. You know, like if the church is the body of Christ, different church groups are sort of like different parts of the body. And so when I think of like, what does the Presbyterian church contribute to the body of Christ? What body part do I think of? Does anybody know? Nose Nose hairs. Yeah. So like, why do your nose hairs exist? They exist to like filter out, you know, like things that could make you sick. They're not necessarily cute or cuddly and sometimes you're embarrassed by them if, they, if you notice them. You know, if it's like sticking out, like I don't really wanna notice my nose hair, but I'm glad that they're there. That's kinda how I see Presbyterian's contribution to the body of Christ. Our job is to be like, I don't really know if that's the right application of the verse or let's study the Hebrew and the Greek for five years and figure out what this passage really means. We need to filter out all the bad theology. We need to be the gatekeepers, right? Well, of course, every strength is a weakness. So when I think about this realization that the culture that you and I live in is so similar to the culture of the early church that it was facing, we really do need to stop and pause and study the strategy of the early church. The early church, when Christianity burst onto the scene, they were not... You know, talking to good, small government-minded conservatives. They were talking to a culture full of pluralists who believed all paths lead to God and they just really want all religions to go along to get along. And that's the world that you and I woke up to today. So we need to study the strategy of the early church. And what does the early church do? Look at verse 32. At the core, at the very beginning, For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Notice what's at work in the early church. The apostles boldly are proclaiming the resurrection of the Son of God you and I woke up into a world where Jesus Christ is alive. Sin has been conquered, a new world is coming, and Christ Jesus will return to make all things new. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. And Jesus Christ calls every man, woman, and child to be a part of his kingdom, to repent of the ways of this world, to give their life to him, and be a part of the family of God. And until that day, until the day of Christ's return, God's people commit themselves to God's word and caring for the needy in their midst. Luke, who wrote this story, also wrote the gospel according to Luke. And in Luke chapter 10, somebody comes up to Jesus and they say, what's the most important commandment (laughs) Don't you love that? It's like, thank you for this giant book. I don't wanna read it. Just summarize it for me real quick. (laughs) What's the answer? To love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? To love your neighbor. And then the guy has the audacity to say what? And who's my neighbor? The people that vote like me, the people who sound like me, the people who share my language, my culture, my background, my town, my school district. Is that how Jesus answered? How does Jesus answer? He says, you wanna know who your neighbor is? It's what? What's the point of the good Samaritan? What's the point of the story? It's anybody, anybody you come across, that's your neighbor. It's the heart of the Christian message. Caring for the poor and needy is integral to the faith. John, Another one of the apostles put it this way. This is 1 John chapter three, verse 16 through 18. He says, by this we know love, that Christ laid down his life for us. There's the gospel. So we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Friends, the great message of Jesus Christ, the gospel is that God loves us that he died on a cross for our sins, that even though we are sinners, all of our sins can be forgiven. And when that message works its way into your hard heart, what happens is like when a, when a weed bursts through the concrete, right, and eventually the concrete all crumbles away and new life happens. That's what it means to be a Christian. The seed of the gospel works its way and it breaks up the hard heart of stone that we have. And all of a sudden, instead of a dead stone heart, we have a new heart. And what the gospel motivates us to do is to love the needy around us, to cultivate that, right? This is part and parcel for why we just sent like 40 teenagers to Mexico, because Mexicans are our neighbors. They're made in the image of God. And for 30 years, our church has been going to Mexico to share the love of God with them. But not just that, We don't just go to build houses for the poor, although that's great. Every parent in the room understands that one of the great callings on our life is to cultivate in the hearts of our young people, what? What? The gospel of grace and a heart of serving the needy. This is why we understand the real benefit of mission trips for teenagers and for adults is not just the good that we do there, but the life transformation that happens when a young person has to sweat in the Mexican summer and they come back and maybe they see people in their community just a little differently. This is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. We just do this sort of thing. And really what I want you to grasp um, if you can even stretch your mind enough to see it, is actually, this is just the great vision of the entire Bible. I think when the early church starts selling everything and they're giving it to the needy among each other, they see themselves as fulfilling all of the hopes of the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy 15, a book you don't read too often, I would imagine, but has some beautiful passages. Deuteronomy 15 says this about the Old Testament people of God. God says, this is his dream for his people in the Old Testament. But there will be no poor among you for the Lord will bless you. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. When we look at Acts chapter 4, What kind of verses do you think are bouncing around in the heads of these early Christians? Verses like Deuteronomy 15. They're fulfilling the great vision for the world that God has given to us in his word. But let's keep going in this passage because in verse 36, what we see is actually uh, Luke shifts our attention away from the corporate church actually to somebody that I really consider a hero of the faith. Uh, If anyone is pregnant, and I know some of y'all are, There's like four ladies who are pregnant. Okay, so if you're looking for a name for a kid, I just wanna submit to your consideration Barnabas. And I promise none of us will call him Barney. We didn't have the courage to name any of our kids Barnabas. But it is a great name. Maybe one of y'all can fulfill it for me. Why would I name a kid Barnabas? Because Barnabas is one of the few people in the Bible that is depicted so positively that it's almost, uh, it's almost unavoidable that he is a great hero of the faith. Look down at verse 36. It says, thus Joseph, that's his real name, uh, but you could shorten Joseph to what? Joe. So obviously that's not gonna work because there's a ton of Joes in the world. So the apostles give him a nickname. The apostles call him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. An encourager. And what does he do? He's a Levite, so he's a Jewish man. Somehow, we don't understand it. The Levite has a field. This man owns a piece of property, although Levites didn't own land, but apparently at this time they did. Uh, he was not raised in Israel, he was raised on the island of Cyprus. But he comes to faith in Jesus Christ and he sells the field and he gives it to the apostles. What I love about Barnabas is if you were to read the rest of the book of Acts, Barnabas shows up in all of these amazing ways. He is definitely, if you were reading and studying the book of Acts, he is meant to be seen as a hero of the faith. So one example of that is if you were to flip a couple pages, uh, you may have heard of a guy, his name is Paul. He wrote like 13 books in the New Testament. His, his original name was Saul. And w- was Saul originally a Christian or was he the enemy of Christianity? Saul was originally the enemy of Christianity, but then miraculously, God meets him on the road to Emmaus and he's struck blind, right? And then he fasts for three days, he gets baptized, he becomes a Christian, and then the awkward thing is that Saul had planned on arresting a bunch of Christians, but by the time he gets to the Christians that he wants to arrest, he's like, oh wait, I don't mean to arrest you, I'm actually one of you now, so we should hang out. Can you come out from your hiding so I can hang out and talk to you about how I'm a Christian now too? Okay, what do you think the Christians think of Paul at this time? Like, Weren't you like on your way to arrest us and now you say you're one of us, which just would be a way to find out who we are? What's the early church supposed to do? Well, guess who hears the testimony of Saul? A guy named Barnabas. And Barnabas says, I see the work of the Holy Spirit. And Barnabas takes Saul by the hand and he introduces him to the apostles. And then Saul goes off to Tarsus for a few years. Barnabas is working in the church. And then people in a town called Antioch start to become Christians. In fact, this is where we get the word Christian from, is from the church in Antioch. This is Acts chapter 11. And the apostles hear that all of these people are coming to faith. This multicultural church is coming to faith. And so they send Barnabas to investigate what's going on with all of these Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 11, verse 23, verse 24, we get to see the kind of person that Barnabas is. Luke writes, when he, that is Barnabas, came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Barnabas goes, he is a good man. He goes and sees what God is up to. And then you know what Barnabas does? Very next verse, he goes, and he's like, I know who should be their pastor. And he goes up to Tarsus and he gets Saul. So you could say that the ministry that you and I have of Paul's writings was all because of a guy named Barnabas who gave him a shot, who is full of the Holy Spirit full of grace, who is an encourager, who believed that people's lives really could change by Jesus Christ. Even someone like Saul, who is trying to murder Christians. Why does Luke want you to focus so much on Barnabas? Well, this is the first time Barnabas is mentioned in the book of Acts. But what I want you to see is part of why the church is a community, right? Part of why we're not just generous to the poor, but we're a community together is because we learn often by immersion and imitation, right? We, we mistake learning when we say it's just information, but we really learn by immersion and imitation. Think about the way a child learns to speak or learns to read. It's not just by information, it's by being immersed in something. Or if you wanted to learn Spanish, how would you learn? You wouldn't look at a textbook, you would do what? You would immerse yourself among Spanish speaking people and you would imitate their language. Learning to be a generous person is something you and I, we pick up on by seeing other people in community. We get into the sphere of people like Barnabas, and we hope some of it rubs off on us. This past week, um, I may have played hooky, uh, Some of you may be proud of me. Some of you may be mad that I skipped some of the meeting to go hiking. But the reason I go to the General Assembly every year is because all my best friends are are fellow pastors. And I have this group of four other pastors. We meet every summer. We stay together, and we normally go hiking somewhere unless we're like stuck in Memphis or somewhere. It's too hot to hike. And uh, this past week, I was around some of my friends, and uh, you know how guys are they're kind of sarcastic sometimes. And uh, especially after like three days of boring meetings, everyone's really jaded and sarcastic by the end of the week. And we were eating our last breakfast together before we all d- separated. And then one of the fellow pastors, you know what he did? He apologized to another guy, like sincerely apologized for his sarcasm. And then he said, will you forgive me? And I remember thinking, this is why these are my best friends. They really believe this stuff. And I wrote in my journal, be humble like Zach. (laughs) This is the blessing of being part of a church community. You actually see every now and then glimpses of what the Christian life is actually like. And you're like, that's actually what humility looks like. Or you get around somebody and go, that's actually what generosity really does look like. I wanna be like that. I think that's what we're supposed to see in the life of Barnabas and what we're supposed to see and encourage in each other. But I wish I could finish the story there and that would be nice and fun and everything, but the story doesn't end there because Luke wants us to compare this beautiful story of Barnabas with this sort of warning story of a married couple named Ananias and Sapphira. So if you look down at Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we're given this warning story. Essentially, uh, if if you didn't quite track what's going on in this story, everyone's selling what they have and giving it to the apostles. But what happens with this married couple, Ananias and Sapphira, is they sell some of their property, but they claim that they gave all of the money of the sale to the church when in reality, they only gave a portion of it to the church. So the problem is not that they, that they were supposed to give all of the money to the church. I mean, Peter says, wasn't it yours before you sold it? And wasn't all the money yours after you sold it? So the point is not that you know, we're all supposed to sell literally everything we have and give it to the poor. What we see is actually what these people contrived to do was they wanted a reputation of being generous. They wanted to walk up in front of everybody and give. They say, oh, we sold everything. We've got nothing left. We sold it all and we gave it all to the church. When in reality, they were fake. They wanted a reputation of generosity, but actually they just lied. And so they held part of it back. Of course, Peter, somehow inspired by the Holy Spirit, understood that he was lying. And how does God respond? Well, he ends Ananias' life in verse seven, his wife comes along, and Peter says, like, tell, you can tell the truth, you know, did you really sell it for this amount of money? And she doesn't understand what happened to her husband, so she continues the charade, continues the lie, and then she passes away as well. So how are we supposed to respond to this? What are we supposed to understand from this? You know, well, the first thing is, it's not that them giving a portion of their money is not the problem. The problem, of course, is that their hearts were fake. They wanted a reputation. They wanted to be around the religious community. They wanted to be around the Jesus community and they wanted to be honored and thought well of. And the spirit of the Lord would not have that. One way to understand the story, if it seems frustrating to you or perplexing, is just to ask yourself, do you like watching really greedy spiritual leaders use the name of Jesus for their own praise and glory? Do you like seeing fake leaders? Do you like it when Christians use the name of Jesus for their own promotion rather than the glory of Jesus? Do you like hypocritical leaders? God doesn't either. Why did these two die? Why are their lives ended like this? Um, I'll give you, I'll try to give you three explanations. Uh, Number one, I think the reason that these two drop dead, literally, is because things are big in the book of Acts. It's written down for our instruction. So uh, Paul will say the big stories in the Old Testament, they are written for our instruction. We're supposed to learn from these stories. So the first thing we're we're supposed to learn from this, it's not every time somebody lies to the church, they're gonna drop dead. This happened particularly, I think, because it's the early church. And from the very beginning, God wants believers to know he will not suffer hypocrisy in his church. It's big and it's meant to go, I need to step back and think about this. I should not lie to the Holy Spirit. I should not be using the name of Jesus for my own gain. So that's number one. Things are big in the book of Acts, right? There's big salvations. There's big miracles. The apostles are doing big things and God is also judging his people in big ways, which is not all that dissimilar to how stories happen in the Old Testament. The second reason I think that these two Uh, pass away like this is because I think God is trying to communicate to you and me that he deals with sin in the church. God will not forever suffer greedy or hypocritical leaders. He will not just go along. In fact, God will judge. And that's meant to make us fear him, to regard him. The third reason I think is actually given in this passage. Look at verse 11. Luke says, Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. And this, that's a verse that can only really make sense, I think, if you're a Christian. Because the Christian conception of God and what the Bible will say is God is love. That's literally a Bible verse. It's First John. God is Love. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. So in one sense, Christianity comes along and says God is full of love. He is full of mercy. He's full of grace. And somehow, in a way that expands our minds and our hearts, God is also extremely holy. He will by no means clear the guilty. Uh, God will punish sin. And as a Christian, those two things can only make sense at the cross, where we see the mercy of God and God's wrath against sin really meet. So as Christians, we grow not just in awareness of God's love, but actually uh, in a way that I think only the cross can help us make sense of. We grow in awareness of God's holiness. We learn to sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. I don't, I don't know if this is helpful at all, so um, just, I'll, I'll try to finish with this. Um, you know, as I'm, I've wrestled with this story, I have been thinking, like, would I do this? Would I, like, strike Ananias and Sapphira dead? No, I would not. <laughs> I would not do that. Um, but God did. So what are we supposed to do with that? Uh, this past week, I read a book called Bully Pulpit, Confronting the Problem of Spiritual Abuse in the Church. Uh, the Stephen ministers asked me to give a talk on this, so thank you, and uh, this book, Bully Pulpit, Confronting the Problem of Spiritual Abuse in the Church, is actually written by an EPC pastor. He's the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. His name is Dr. Michael Kruger. So he wrote this book on spiritual abuse, You know, pastors wielding their power to abuse the sheep. And uh, one of the things he talks about in this book is how hard it is for victims to get the voice of the pastor out of their head And that stuck with me. And I I can't imagine what that would be like to be uh, treated like that by your pastor and then not to be able to get, not to be able to distinguish the voice of your pastor from the voice of God. So again, I don't know if this is helpful or all, but perhaps the greatest thing I can give you this morning is to remind you explicitly to distinguish my voice from the voice of God. I do my best to speak on behalf of God, but I am not God. God has a unique voice. He has unique holiness. He has unique authority. John 10 tells us Jesus said this, the sheep follow the shepherd. They know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. They will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers, but they know the shepherd's voice. Do you hear the voice of God in this passage calling you and I to be generous, calling you and I to be like Barnabas, warning us in a more scary way than I would in my own voice, warning you not to be a fake Christian? That's the voice of God in this passage. You and I are called to take it seriously. Is reputation all we really have? Praise be to God. No, it is not. What matters is what God sees. And in his eyes alone, should we worry? Let's pray. If I can, I'm gonna finish the way my week with my fellow pastors finished by reading from the prayer, the valley of vision. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. That to be brought low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Father, we thank you for your grace and we thank you and praise you for your holiness. Help us to see both of those things and to hear your voice in scripture. Father, we pray for those who are sick and fighting illness, Uh, who aren't able to be with us, uh, who are suffering uh, their own private journeys. And Lord, we pray that you would be gracious and merciful to them. Lord, we commend to you our brothers and sisters now, Dick Card, Kristen Tours, Mac Peffley, Colleen Eccleston, Lorraine Hoffman, Sean McCoy, Paul Deller, and Phoebe Allstad. And Lord, we praise and thank you for our little denomination for the evangelical Presbyterian church that is a refuge for so many churches that seek to be true to your word. Lord, we pray for all of the pastors, all of the ruling elders and the deacons in the congregates of our denomination, Lord, that we would seek the face of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Father, we lift to you now our teenagers and our adult leaders that are... Uh, possibly worshiping in Mexico uh, right now, close to the border. And Lord, as they cross the border, as they attend church, as they get settled, Lord, we pray that you would spark in them a sincere love for one another, knowing your love first. Lord, we particularly pray for the incoming freshmen. uh, Lord, as they uh, dip their toes into being part of the high school youth group, Lord, that you would spark something in the older students to make them feel welcome and wanted in our youth group. And Father, we ask all of these things in the only name that could bring them about in the name of Jesus in whom we believe, amen.